Well, since everyone has already prayed my message, um, maybe we should just just go home. <laughs> we'll, we could pray some more. Amen. Well, we'll do that. <laughs> but I'll ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to First Peter chapter four, verses seven through eleven is what we'll be reading here tonight. The believer's response to the end of all things. Let us stand together as we read, as I read, and you follow along with me. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. And above all things have fervent charity among yourselves. For charity shall cover the multitude of sins. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. And if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, how we pray that you would bless the reading of your word, that you would bless the preaching of your holy word through fallible vessels, weak vessels, but Lord, that you would be glorified and that you would encourage our hearts as has been prayed. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 You may be seated. I worked as a prison chaplain for some years, about five years, down in central Florida. And we had different men coming in to preach at various times. And many of them were not preaching the word but giving pep rally talks and different things. And there was one guy, and his name was Bob. And Bob was a more faithful preacher of the word, and I appreciated him. And I didn't choose the preachers, but they came under someone else's uh, authority and an invitation. But Bob came in one, one Sunday, and he preached a message on little children it is the last hour. And I don't know how many times he repeated that, but I have never forgotten that message. Although I've forgotten many messages that I probably heard him preach and I've heard others preach, I've heard better preachers than him preach. But for some reason, that stuck in my mind. Little children, it is the last hour. It was a memorable message, and I hope this message will be memorable not because I'm preaching it, but I pray that it will be memorable to you and that God will use it in your life for good. Amen. Well, we've, we've read the text, and Peter is telling us that the end of all things is at hand in verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. <clears throat> and then he gives us an outline of different things that we should do 
in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. It's a fact that the end of our lives is approaching. It is a fact that we're all on the verge of the grave, as it were. Even young people in this congregation, you don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know how long God has given you to live on this earth. But it's a fact that the end of our lives is fast approaching. We will not forever live in these bodies. These bodies are perishing bodies. Your last breath is at hand. You will breathe your last someday. Your final heartbeat is at hand. One of these days, your heart will kathump one more time and stop. It is appointed unto man once to die, but after this, the judgment. Your life is a vapor, the Bible says. It's just a, a little vapor of moisture in the air. Your, your life is like a blade of grass that grows up in the morning and withers in the evening. Your life is like a handbreadth. God is telling us these things because our lives are very short. I'm 65, <clears throat> and it seems like just yesterday I was a little barefoot kid uh, running down the streets in Miami, Florida, and swimming in the lake, Westwood Lake, across the street. Our lives are short. And their end is at hand. And all that Peter says applies to this reality. Everything that Peter says here applies to that truth, that reality. But Peter is saying something that's much bigger than our death. Peter is saying something that is larger than just your individual existence in this world. Peter is saying, but the end of all things is at hand. Peter is speaking of the end of this world and this age as we know it. He he enlarges on this as well in in the end of his second letter, which is confirmation that that's what he's talking about, although uh, a lot of commentators are hedging on saying what he means when he says the end of all things is at hand, which I didn't even know there was any question about it in my mind until I started reading the commentaries. And then I began to look at it and say, well, you know, the the destruction of Jerusalem or the death of a man, or what is he talking about here? But no, Peter is very clear that the end of all things, all things is at hand. And he doesn't qualify it in any other way. And then confirmation of that is the end of 2 Peter, where he says in chapter 3 and verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also, this room, this air, this earth that you are living in today, shall melt With fervent heat, the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. Seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire 
shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Peter had the future in mind. And Peter had the future in mind in 2 Peter, and he also had it in mind in 1 Peter. Peter is speaking of the end of this world and this age as we know it. But the end of all things is at hand. We are living in the last days, and we don't need to prove that again because it was proved to us not too long ago. <coughs> Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, and we are living in the last days. The last days uh, commenced or began in the time of the early church. And we are also now still living in the last days, but we could be living in the last of the last days because a lot of time has passed. According to the Bible, the earth is less than 10,000 years old. It is a young earth. We are living on an earth that is not billions and billions of years old. <clears throat> How do you date rocks that God created and determine how old they are. How old were they at creation? How old was Adam when God created him? He was created with apparent age, and the world was created with apparent age. I was not there, and you were not there, but God was there. <clears throat> and the Bible clearly presents a young earth. Even any reasonable person can look at this earth and see that there has been a cataclysmic flood that happened upon this earth that created the Grand Canyon, that created all the canyons, most of the canyons that are out there. And it wasn't that little stream going through those big canyons, but there was a big gush of water, and, and there are huge... Um, uh, mountains that have seashells on the top of them and things of that nature. Well, we don't always trust the science, do we? <clears throat> Paul said that God would make a short work upon the earth. It's a young earth, and God is making a short work upon the earth, Romans chapter 9. Jesus said, behold, I come quickly. <clears throat> well, Peter also said, but the end of all things is at hand. God is going to make a short work on the earth, not in relation to, to uh, my perspective of things, but according to his perspective of things. I may think that a that hundred years is a long period of time because I've only lived 65 years, and I doubt that I'll ever make it to a hundred years. <clears throat> I don't think I'm quite as healthy as my mother is, who's 94 now. <clears throat> but, but God sees things from the perspective of God. He, he sees out of eternity into time, and a thousand years is as one day, and one day is as a thousand years to our God. And he says, behold, I come quickly. Well, the end of time is not known to us. We don't know when that's going to happen. The Bible very clearly states that we know neither the day nor the hour. The time of the end will be a surprise. He's coming as a thief in the night. 
The end will come after the gospel is preached in all the world. Jesus said in Matthew 24, But he that shall endure to the end, the same shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. And who can say among us when that time is that the gospel has been fully preached in all the world? Romans chapter 13, Paul says, The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. We're now closer than when Paul even wrote that. And closer than when Peter said, But the end of all things is at hand. James says that the judge stands before the door in James chapter 5. The judge standeth before the door. That means the the next thing in God's timetable is that at the end of time, the judge will come. He will open the door and enter in. Peter says the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, even as we read in 2 Peter chapter 3. Well, it's been 2,000 years since the days of Jesus and the apostles. And yet God said he would make a short work upon the earth. And that is God's estimation of time. When Peter says the end of all things is at hand, what are some of those things? Peter is saying the end of all things is at hand. Some of those things, the end of the devil and demonic powers is at hand. Praise the Lord. The devil will be cast into that lake of fire and all the demons with him and the unbelieving and and those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life, but the end of the devil. The end of evil men and evil government is at hand. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. We won't have to read about it anymore. We won't have to think about it. We won't have to experience it. The end of sickness and disease and death is at hand. That's wonderful. The end of war and fighting and violence is at hand. The end of inequality and sinful domination of men over other men is at hand. The end of time is at hand. Time, matter, and space will end as we know it. We're living in a continuum, they say, of time, matter, and space. The continuum will not continue forever. The end of opportunity is at hand. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. Now is the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation. This is the time of opportunity to seek the Lord with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, to seek after him The end of opportunity is at hand. The end of the gospel age is at hand. The end of repentance and faith is at hand. And so we need to act and seek the Lord with all of our hearts. The end of prayer is at hand. The end of the great and glorious promises of God is at hand. The end of preparation is at hand. 
the night comes when no man can work. So what are we to do? Because the end of all things is at hand. Peter, (coughs) what should we do? Peter, what? You tell us that the end is at hand, and you have made it very clear that the end of all things is at hand. Now, Peter, what should we do? I so deeply appreciated that a brother got up, Brother Tim, and confessed our prayerlessness. And that's about pretty much my first point. And, and prayed, asking God to forgive us for our lack of love. And that's pretty much my second point. And, and Joel got up and, and prayed about unity and, and asked for forgiveness on our, on our lack of unity. And that's part of it here. And Pastor Jeff got up and started to preach my message about prayer a while ago. <clears throat> so what are we to do? Well, the first thing that Peter says is, but the end of all things is at hand. Be therefore sober and watch unto prayer. What are we to do as we see the end of the end coming? What, what are we to do when it seems to us, and we may be wrong because we don't know for certain, <clears throat> the Father has not given it into our hands to know all the things that are going to happen when they're going to happen. <clears throat> but when we consider the end of all things being at hand, Peter says, be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Be sober and watchful in your prayers. Christians, be men and women of prayer. Be a people of prayer in the light of the fact that time is so short. Frank, be a man of prayer. I want to be. The, The Lord is helping us. You know, these sicknesses that we're having, they're helping us. I don't know about you guys, but I had, I think I had COVID again. <laughs> Been taking ivermectin. I, I didn't take it today because it was making me sleepy and I wanted to keep you guys awake. <laughs> I wanted to stay awake so you guys didn't go to sleep. <clears throat> but one thing that happened to me was <clears throat> at the end of a couple of days of fever, and as I began to work on my daughter's piano, putting the key tops on the, on the keys on her piano, and I spent about two days doing that. Um, I was told by a piano repairman that it would take about six hours. It took me two whole days to do that. But I sat there, <clears throat> and I don't know if it was because of the fevers or what, but I wept. And I prayed. And it was so sweet. Amen. Just sitting alone working on piano keys, just crying out to the Lord. If you're not a praying man, you need to get started because the end of the world is coming. Peter says the end of all things is at hand. And if you're not a praying man, you need to be a praying man. If you're not a praying woman, you need to be a praying woman. If you are a praying man or you are a praying woman, you need to grow and increase in your prayers. You need to grow and increase in your prayer life. May the Lord give us more illness if it's going to help us in our prayer lives. May the Lord give us more afflictions if they're going to help us in our prayer lives. We're not praying for afflictions. We're not praying for sickness. We have not lost our minds. 
We haven't gone off the deep end. This is not a cult. But if God so, so sees that we need these things, suffering and difficulties and trials in our lives, let him bring them to us. Suffering will drive the lost person away from God. Suffering will drive the believer to God. It will draw us to his feet. You can pray and be a lost person. But if you're saved, you can't be a prayerless person. Your prayers won't save you, but saved men are praying men. And Peter is telling us how to motivate ourselves to pray. Consider that the end of all things is at hand. Consider that the end is coming. It will help you in your prayer life. Well, Peter tells us to be sober in our prayers. He says, Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. One commentator says, I believe a faithful commentator, he says soberly, sober means properly a man of a sound mind, one who follows sound reason and who is not under the control of passion. The idea is that he should have his desires and passions well regulated. The thought that of the end of all things should sober our minds and lead us to sobriety in prayer because we're considering that God is going to destroy all things and all of this world will be burned up and we will stand before a holy God, a holy and a righteous God. We will find ourselves <coughs> alone at the judgment seat of Christ and therefore we need to be sober in our prayers. We need to be of a sound mind. We need to follow sound reason. We need to not be under the control of passion, but we should have our desires and passions well regulated as we pray. Peter tells us to be watchful in our prayers. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. <clears throat> and so we are to be a watchful people in our prayers. You remember the Lord told his disciples, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, could you not watch with me one hour? Could you not watch with me one hour? He wanted them to watch unto prayer, lest they fall into temptation. So we are to be watchful in our prayers. We should watch for opportunities to pray. We should watch for them. When you're driving down the road alone, it's a great opportunity to pray. When you wake up in the morning, great opportunity to pray. Spurgeon said that scarce a quarter of an hour would pass, but that he would lift up his heart in prayer to God. Spurgeon said it. And I trust Spurgeon on that. Spurgeon, every 15 minutes, scarce 15 minutes would pass, but that he would lift up his heart in prayer to God. What a testimony. And, and what a... What a insight into the secret of power in his life. Watch for opportunities to pray. Watch in prayer against times of temptation. Watch in prayer as temptation comes your way in life or the potential for temptation. Watch for the blessings and enlargements of the Spirit. Watch in prayer that the Spirit would come and that he would grip you and that he would move you and that he would direct you as you pray. 
Watch by praying immediately when needs arise. Sometimes pastor will, will say something from the pulpit. We should all begin to pray for it and not just wait till later. <clears throat> Although we probably shouldn't all do what I did on Sunday when he spoke of, of the confession and start reading the thing in the hymn book. <laughs> and I read through it. <clears throat> and I got the tract and I read it again. <laughs> and I'm still reading it. Your prayers won't save you, but saved men are praying men. So Peter is telling us how to motivate ourselves to pray. Consider that the end of all things <coughs> is at hand. Amen. Well, Peter is also saying these things to a people who are suffering. <coughs> Peter is saying this to the pilgrims of the dispersion, as he mentions in the, in the introduction to the book, and as we can see throughout the whole book of 1 Peter, they are a people who are going through suffering. <clears throat> he says in chapter 4, verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind, for he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. <clears throat> After this section, he says in verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. And so Peter is saying these things to a people who are suffering. <clears throat> May the Lord give us grace to pray even more in our sufferings, whether it's sickness or whatever it may be. <clears throat> well, Peter has told us to pray. <clears throat> In verse 8, he gives us more. How else are we to respond considering that the end of all things is at hand? Peter tells us, secondly, that we are to have fervent love for one another. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And Peter gives it, the highest emphasis, and he says, and above all things, and above all things. He has just told us to pray, and now he says, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. <clears throat> this love is your highest priority. I was hesitating to say, that Peter is putting love above prayer until I read it in John Gill, <laughs> who was the pastor before Spurgeon at the tabernacle. And I said, really? That is amazing. Paul says faith, hope, and charity are all important, but the greatest of these is charity. Amen. The greatest of these is love. Amen. Peter mentions prayer first, but here... He prioritizes love. What will our prayers avail if we do not have love? What, what good are the prayers of a loveless people? Without love, your prayers are like sounding brass and a clanging or tinkling cymbal. <clears throat> this love is to be a one another love. 
He says, and above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Among yourselves. He's speaking to the whole church. And he's saying, among yourselves, toward one another, you are to have this fervent love. And so it is a one another love, a beautiful symphony of mutual and reciprocal love. It's not one person coming in the door and loving everybody. It's not one person being the the one with the love gift and everyone else has a different kind of gift. But it's the body of Christ coming together and loving one another in a beautiful symphony of mutual and reciprocal love among yourselves. We are to love our family and our friends, but it is to include all of God's people. We are not to exclude God's people. We are to love not just for our own little church group, but for all believers. We are to love the saints of God, those who know him. We are to mirror Christ's love for all of his flock, and he loves every one of his own. And we are to love all of God's people. He says that this love is to be a fervent love in verse 8. And above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. And so we are to be fervent in our love. Fervent in our love. It is not to be lukewarm or indifferent. We are not to come into the church and and just act as if if the, the brothers and the sisters are just commonplace. No, we are to have a fervent love for the body of Christ. In other words, a convincing love. Are you convinced that the brothers and sisters love you? Well, you're to love them with a convincing love and a felt love. I think we have some good examples in our church of convincing love and a felt love. And I praise God for it. It is not to be lukewarm or indifferent. This love is to be without ceasing. You say, but Frank, I don't see the word without ceasing there. When Peter was in prison, prayer was made for him without ceasing. That's the exact same word in the Greek as the word fervent here, without ceasing. And so he says, above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves. Have charity that is without ceasing. Our love is to be a fervent, undying blaze, fueling one another to a greater love. The writer of Hebrews says, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. Let us consider one another. That means you take your eyes off of yourself and you look at the other brother or sister and you consider them. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works. What This is what we're supposed to be doing in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, because this is a part of God's great commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and to love your neighbor as yourself. Well, don't be too quick to say that loving others is easy. 
because it's not always easy. Sometimes people will say mean things to you. Sometimes people will cross you. Sometimes people will say things about you, and you will find out that they have said things about you. <clears throat> but you are told to love them. Amen. And you are told to love them fervently. <clears throat> and you are told to do this above all things. Above all things, have fervent charity among yourselves in that beautiful symphony <clears throat> of mutual affection. You are to love one another fervently. Sometimes the brethren will hold different views than you have. Not only sometimes. <laughs> but probably every one of us has different views on certain things. How should you respond? You are not called to avoid them. You are not called to look for the group that agrees with you. Amen. You are not called to condemn them. <clears throat> you may discuss your differences, and you probably should. You may have a heart-to-heart -heart talk, but you are to let love rule in all of that conversation. Amen. Peter, why should we have fervent love for one another in the light of the end of all things. Peter tells us, he says in verse 8, for charity or love shall cover the multitude of sins. We would rather Peter had said errors, but no, Peter said sins. We would rather Peter had said faults, but Peter said sins. <clears throat> and to make it even more radical, <clears throat> he used the word multitude in connection with sins. And so he says, <clears throat> charity shall cover the multitude of sins. And I imagine that Peter is reflecting on what Jesus said when Jesus told him, not just to forgive your brother seven times, which Peter thought was pretty extreme. Shall, shall I forgive seven times? But no, 70 times seven. Which, for the mathematicians in the group, is 490 times. But you're going to lose count somewhere in there. And the Lord is not saying literally count to 490, but he's saying love shall cover the multitude of sins. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah. A multitude of sins. <laughs> and, and what will that love, what will this love, this charity do with all of that multitude of sins? What will it do with them? It will cover them. This word cover means to cover up or to hide. It is a wonderful truth that churches are places where everyone is called to cover up each other's sins. Now, I know there are sins that require discipline. I know that. There is a need sometimes for repentance and, and, and forgiveness. But there are a lot of little sins that need to be forgiven. I, 
I think in my case, a lot of things need to be forgiven. And sometimes I'm, I'm up here and I think, oh no, I did something wrong. I, I hope everybody will forgive me. <laughs> Churches are where you go to love other people. Churches are, are, are a, a body of believers that you are called to love fervently. Churches are, are places where you are to go and love people and cover a multitude of sins. Small towns are where you go for juicy gossip, not churches. Workplaces are where the bosses and certain difficult co-workers get roasted around the coffee pot, but not at the church. People go to bars and pour out their woes about other people to people who are just as ready to pour out their woes with other people around them. But churches are not places where we go to pour out our woes about other people. The church is where you go to hide sins and cover them up by deliberately never bringing them up again, by not gossiping or backbiting or backstabbing, God help us, by taking it all to the throne of grace where the Lord wants us to go with those sins. Have you ever had someone hurt you and, and you might even say that they hurt you deeply in the church. Has that ever happened in your life? If it hasn't happened, you haven't been in church very long. One of the great blessings of Christ in our hearts is that that happens and those people become the people that we love the most sometimes. Because in our hearts we determine I'm going to do everything I can to love that brother. And I've had that happen where someone said something that cut me deeply. You say, Brother Frank, maybe you should have talked to him about it. Here's what I did. Sometimes I have talked to brethren about things. But in certain cases, I have just determined I'm going to go out of my way to greet this brother. I am going to go out of my way to talk to this brother, to spend time with this brother. And I've almost forgotten. (laughs) Almost forgotten the things that were said. and, And I certainly have forgotten it emotionally And the Lord has helped me. Has that ever happened in your life? That should be happening on a regular basis in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we are called to love one another fervently. And we are called to cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that wonderful? This is the only place where this happens. This doesn't happen in the political arena. They're they're cutting each other and they're trying to disturb each other at the political level and, and, and Biden did this, and Trump did that, and they're fighting the big fight up there. The church is not to be that way. Amen. The church is a place of love. Amen. <clears throat> okay, Peter, the end of all things is at hand, and we're to be sober and watchful in our prayers, and we're to love one another fervent, fervently, but is that all? 
Peter says we're to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Use hospitality, verse 9, one to another without grudging. And this is an extension on the one another love command. This is hospitality, <clears throat> and hospitality is love in action. Amen? Amen? Hospitality literally means fond of guests. Isn't that beautiful? It means fond of guests. <clears throat> it's not just a, an action that we do, but it, there's something going on in the heart. Now, it's true that in Peter's time, and in this time of persecution, and there was a great dispersion of the Jews and the believing Jews, <clears throat> that guests were an abundant problem in the church. Because they were moving around, they were escaping from their enemies, and, and so there were frequent opportunities for hospitality. So Peter is mentioning this. Use hospitality one to another without grudging. Are you fond of guests? Are you fond of guests? Do you enjoy bringing people into your home to eat your food and enjoy your couch? And to give them a glass of water or to give them a cup of coffee, are you fond of guests? Do you find joy in feeding the saints? Is it your pleasure to bring guests into your home for spiritual fellowship? We are to be fond of hospitality toward our guests without grudging. Now here's an interesting Greek word, <clears throat> the word grudging. It's the word gongusmos. Isn't that an interesting sound? It means mumbling or grumbling, or as our version, grudging. We are not to mumble, and we are not to grumble, and we are not to grudge. We are not to gongusmos toward our guests. No Scrooge hospitality is allowed. <clears throat> this is real Christian love, wanting to be a blessing to others. So what forms can hospitality take? <clears throat> Sharing meals and the comforts of a home. Fellowship around coffee or a snack. It doesn't have to be a meal. Sharing books. I think Tim and Ruby were very hospitable by giving books to others. And there are some here who are doing that. <clears throat> Praying together. Being together, sharing anything together is a form of hospitality. Peter says that in the light of the end of all things, we should pray, we should love one another, we should be hospitable to one another. But he doesn't stop there, and one more item is added. And so Peter says we should minister our spiritual gifts to one another. We should do that. Verse 10, as every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen.
So he gives us two examples, <clears throat> and that is speaking the oracles of God or speaking for God, and as we speak for God and on behalf of God, we speak as the oracles of God. We realize this is God's word that I'm speaking, and I'm not speaking my own words. And he uses the example of ministering or serving one another. But these two examples are not exhaustive because there are many more gifts. The gifts are not just two in the church, but there are many gifts in the church. And so whatever ability God has given you, in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand, as you have received a gift, you are to minister that gift one to another in the church. And that's why we should hang out after the service is over. And that's why we should invite others into our homes. And let me say that that is why we should have meals together after we assemble. Not necessarily every time, but we should have meals together. Although I would prefer every time. And so, everyone in the church is given a spiritual gift, and we are to edify and build up and strengthen the body in love. In fact, I was happy to read about this in our Constitution. And the Constitution says, we believe that every member in the church is given a spiritual gift for the purpose of edifying, building up, and strengthening the body in love. So whatever abilities you have, you're called to share them to build up the Lord's people. Amen. We should never just attend church. <coughs> we should come to be a blessing. Amen. <coughs> well, Peter says, the end of all things is at hand. How should we respond? We need to grow in our prayer lives. We need to be sober <coughs> and watchful in our prayers. We need to have fervent charity among ourselves, for charity will cover a multitude of sins. We need to show hospitality one to another in the body of Christ. We need to minister our gifts one to another. God, help us to respond in this way to the end of all things being at hand. Amen. Let us pray. Father, may you help us in this matter. May you seal this message in our minds and in our hearts. May you give it, may you cause it to sink down deep in our hearts and influence us that we would think about it, that we would think about the truth of what is said here, that Lord, in light of all of these things happening, what manner of persons ought we to be in all godliness and in all holiness of life? And surely these are the things of a holy life, prayer and love and hospitality and ministry in, in the body of Christ, how we pray that you would help us. Help us to respond in this way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Let us stand together. In closing, 
Peter at the end of his letter says, Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Amen.